This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll talk about two things for which Trump is not responsible. How American corporations won civil rights for themselves. Adam Winkler of the UCLA Law School will explain. And how big wireless convinced us cell phones were safe. Mark Hertzgard of The Nation has done an investigation of that. But first, why Paul Ryan is throwing in the towel. Trump Watch starts right now. Paul Ryan, Republican Speaker of the House, announced yesterday he was not going to run for re-election. Of course, he's from Janesville in southern Wisconsin. And for comment, we turn to John Nichols. He's from Madison in southern Wisconsin. He's also national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author most recently of Horseman of the Trumpocalypse. Uh, John Nichols, welcome back. It is a great pleasure to be with you, my friend, and I will inform you that while I am in fact, a resident of Madison, Wisconsin. Today, uh, I grew up much closer to Janesville. And in fact, uh, my dad and Paul Ryan's dad went to law school together. And I think I've known Paul Ryan since he was well before he entered politics. Well, we're especially happy to be talking to you about Paul Ryan in that case. Um, so there are several different theories about why he threw in the towel yesterday. Was he going to lose his re-election campaign uh, uh, in Janesville? Was, did he want to get out before he lost the speakership of the House because he knows the Republicans are likely to retake the House in no- November? Or is there maybe some other reason? Please, please feel free to speculate. Well, that is what we will all do, of course. Um, and I would answer yes all three of your questions. Uh, I think that, yes, Paul Ryan was afraid of the possibility of losing his own seat in one of those rare circumstances where a Speaker of the House uh, loses his seat. He wouldn't be the first. Remember, uh, in that first Republican wave of the Clinton presidency back in 1994, the Speaker of the House uh, lost his seat. And so, in a Republican wave or a Democratic wave election, right, the ability to vote against an unpopular president often focuses on a Speaker of the House's congressional race. And it can transform uh, an otherwise non-competitive district into a competitive district. Uh, is because all of the national concerns, all of the frustrations come to focus there. And Paul Ryan's district is a gerrymandered district, and it favors a Republican. Ryan himself helped to draw it. So, you know, there's no doubt that um, it's a friendly district to him. However, there is a tremendous amount of evidence that uh, the mobilization in uh, southeastern Wisconsin on behalf of an opponent to Paul Ryan, the there's two contenders in the primary there. This one guy's gotten a lot of national attention, Randy Bryce, who's yeah. an iron worker who a lot of people have paid attention to. He has a lot of endorsements. There's also a school board member from the area running, uh, Kathy Myers. And bottom line is that uh, if someone is nominated in that seat and they've got the right level of support, it's possible a Democrat could have unseated Paul Ryan. So that's step one for why he might choose to step down. There's nothing more embarrassing than a speaker losing his own seat. Number two, 
there is a growing likelihood that um, Democrats could retake the House. That's why you see not just Paul Ryan, but dozens of other Republican members, some from relatively safe seats, choosing to stand down in this cycle. And then number three, your third question. This one may get to the heart of the matter, and it's a really important one. Paul Ryan is identified with nothing so much as the idea of assaulting Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Yeah. Uh, going after those programs, restructuring them in ways that we might use the word privatize, he would use reform. The bottom line is that you would put a lot more of the future of Social Security, for instance, uh, on the stock market, you know, kind of bartered off there with Medicare, with Medicaid, to either voucherize those programs or otherwise alter them in some pretty radical ways. And the interesting thing is that after the tax cut was done, the, the, the Trump-Ryan tax cut, what Ryan said immediately was, okay, now we've done this big thing, we need to turn immediately and do the next big thing, which is Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid reform. And by all indications, the message Ryan got back from his fellow Republicans, his own, the people who made him speaker, as well as the Trump White House and everybody is, there is no way we're going to touch that. Wow. We're not going near that this year. And so here's the place where Ryan finds himself. He's identified with something incredibly unpopular that nobody wants to do. <laughs> and there's a very good chance Democrats this year are going to run against that. They're yeah. going to run against yeah. the threat of an assault on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And so I think an element of Paul Ryan's thinking, maybe not the whole of it, because there's always a mix of these things, I think an element of Paul Ryan's thinking is, I think I'd better get out of the way if I want to have any future political career in this country and let the defeats of 2018 be blamed entirely on Donald Trump, not on me. That's very convincing to me, but I have one big question about all of this. The timing. Why did he do this yesterday? The Republican Party would have been a lot happier if he'd waited until, you know, November 8th or 9th, after, right after the election. He's their biggest fundraiser. Uh, yep. They, you know, this is incredibly disheartening and terrifying indeed to lots of uh, Republican candidates in swing districts. Why now? What is going on mm -hmm. now? And, of course, there is a lot going on now in Washington politics. I mean, the day before he made his announcement mm -hmm. was the raid on the FBI raid on Trump's private attorney's offices, uh, Michael Cohen. Uh, today, The New Yorker has published uh, this Ronan Farrow story that the doorman of Trump Tower was paid off by the National Enquirer. Uh, not to talk about a story where he says that Trump fathered a child with his housekeeper. We don't have verification of that uh, yet. But that was what happened the day before and the day after. It does make you wonder if there's something about the timing here. Well, and then could we throw something else? And I hate to bring you know something aside from Trump gossip into the mix here. Okay. Um, but you know we do have sort of this this ongoing discussion about potentially a new war in the Middle East oh, yeah. that, you know, might become a very serious conflict uh, involving the United States and Russia even, maybe, um, which, uh, is gonna be, which could, in fact, be a real challenge in a whole bunch of other areas. So, yeah, this is a volatile week. Uh, we should be conscious of all that. And I agree with the points that you're making. What you're really trying to say is, or ask, I believe, is, does Paul Ryan know something 
about what's happening or what's going to happen that is going to make things even worse for Paul Ryan and or his congressional caucus. Yeah. Am I paraphrasing yes. you correctly? I, I, you have seen um, my secret purpose. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the bottom line. Yes, the Speaker of the House is, and this is one of the most interesting things, Speaker of the House is one of the most informed people in Washington, always, because, especially somebody like Paul Ryan, who's a lifer, who's been there since the you know, late 1980s, early 1990s. He's spent an immense amount of time on Capitol Hill. He knows everyone personally. And actually, he's a Hill fellow well-met. People like him. A lot of people like him. And a lot of people want to talk to him. And so if there's anybody who knows more about the kind of play of the moment, the whole thing that's going on, I would say it's quite legitimately Paul Ryan. And so you may be right about one of those things. But I can tell you absolutely one thing that he knows. He knows that a week ago, week ago yesterday, or two days ago, in Wisconsin, there was an election for state Supreme Court. It was a clear battle between the right and the left. The Republicans were very sympathetic to one candidate. The Democrats were very sympathetic to the other candidate. Uh, For years, the conservatives, the Republicans, have won these kind of races. They had a whole machine set up. They're very, very good at winning these kind of races. A week ago, Tuesday, they lost, and they didn't just lose by a little. It was a 56-44 win for a progressive Democrat, or or progressive, she wasn't actually identified as a Democrat, running for the state Supreme Court, who ran against Trump, against Walker, against kind of the, the, you know, frankly, corrupt model of a lot of our contemporary politics in the state of Wisconsin. And here's the interesting thing. She flipped counties. She flipped 24 counties that Trump won in 2016, wow. including areas in Paul Ryan's district. Wow. And so Paul Ryan is nothing if he is not a smart political analyst. And I think he looked at his home state and his home district, and he said, wow, there's something afoot there. Doesn't necessarily mean for sure I would be defeated. But it does mean that this is not going, it's likely, not certain, but likely not to be an election like previous elections. Uh, Let's talk about the local politics in Janesville a little more. This guy, Randy Bryce, we've seen him on MSNBC. He builds himself as a father, an Army veteran, an iron worker, and a cancer survivor. Of course, he's known for the excellence of his mustache. Seems like a very Wisconsin kind of guy. I've known Randy Bryce for many, many years, just as I've known Paul Ryan. Or, you know, and again, I'm not trying to tell you I'm some sort of friend with Paul Ryan, but, you know, congenial greetings and stuff along the way. Yeah. I, I've probably been around Randy Bryce a good deal more. Um, and, uh, look, when the Wisconsin uprising came, Randy Bryce was a working iron worker, a guy who, you know, moved, moved steel and iron in tough places up on the tops of buildings. He built some of the bigger buildings and facilities in the Milwaukee area. So he's, he's, a real, he's real on this thing. And um, he's been through personal financial struggles because of health problems. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's a sincere player. But the interesting thing about him is that he's one of many, many people in Wisconsin who was really um, transformed by the Wisconsin uprising of 2011, the struggle against Scott Walker's assault on labor rights, public education, and public services. And uh, he was 
He became the political director of his uh, Iron Workers Local, which is a very large one. Uh, he waded into a lot of politics. He showed up for every demonstration. Um, he is not a typical politician. Uh, he's a working man who saw his circumstance threatened by uh, power, by the Koch brothers and others coming into Wisconsin, transforming uh, labor laws uh, and the approach to all sorts of issues, and stepped up. And uh, I, I would say he's about the opposite of Paul Ryan. Mm-hmm. And chances are he'll be the opposite of whoever Republicans put up in that race, if Bryce is the nominee. Remember, there's another candidate in yeah. the primary. Um, but if Bryce is the nominee, that distinction is going to be very, very clear. And Bryce has been running now for essentially a year, or better part of a year. Uh, he does, he's gotten a lot of national attention. But the other thing is, he's really framed out, I think, a pretty strong argument, pretty strong criticism of not just Ryan, but the, the politics of the moment, the politics of the contemporary Republican Party. And, you know, I was interviewing him yesterday, and my sense is he's very ready. You know, he was ready to go up against Ryan, and in some ways that might have been the easier race. Uh, but my sense is that if he is the nominee, he's quite ready to go up against whoever they put up. And the chances are they'll put up a legislator associated with Scott Walker and uh, Paul Ryan. And so in many ways the, the basic campaign model continues. You know, there is another explanation for why Paul Ryan threw in the towel, uh, which I guess we should consider, uh, and that's the—we've uh, heard a lot of this in the last couple of days. Paul Ryan, we may have disagreed with him, but he was a guy who had principles when he came into politics. He was a decent person. Uh, he was horrified by Trump's conduct. He he put him in a terrible uh, position of conflict, Uh you know, uh, when after the Access Hollywood tape, he said he would no longer, uh, he could no longer defend Trump, and uh, he was uh, frustrated. He was defeated. Uh, his he, he was compromised, and it was the it was all of that that drove him out of uh, of politics. A decent man undermined by the the evils of Washington and especially of Trump. Hundred percent bogus argument. Okay, A silly, stupid argument. Uh, Paul Ryan, more than anyone else, facilitated the rise of Donald Trump. He often said, I'm offended by what Donald Trump said, or I don't like it, or I wouldn't have said it that way. And then, when asked, well, what are you going to do? He says, well, that doesn't disqualify him as, you know, if he's the Republican nominee, I'm going to back him. Right? And notably, you said, yeah, after the Access Hollywood tape, he said, I put my distance from this guy. But then within a week or so, he was on TV saying, oh, yeah, I cast my absentee ballot for Donald Trump. No one legitimized Donald Trump more than Paul Ryan. He's the guy who said, yeah, I don't really like him, but of course, he's the logical choice for Republicans. Paul Ryan is personally responsible for, the, for a substantial portion of the rise of Donald Trump. And here's how bad a player Paul Ryan was on these issues. At a certain point, when, remember the, the Latino judge that yeah. Trump was going after and attacking, even though the judge is a federal judge who had a case. The judge was born in the United States, and yet Trump was trashing him all over the place. You remember that? Yes. During the campaign? Yes. Paul Ryan came out and said some of the things that Trump was saying were textbook, or amounted to textbook racism, right? Textbook racism, textbook bigotry. And here's a guy, the leading figure in Congress of the party of Abraham Lincoln, 
says a potential nominee was engaging in textbook racism or textbook bigotry, and yet he couldn't reject that candidate. He didn't say, so I cannot support him as the nominee of the Republican Party. Do you understand? No one, no one compromised more horribly to facilitate the Trump candidacy than Paul Ryan. There's, there's no defense for him on this, none whatsoever. So last point, I just want to look at the national impl- implications of this for another minute. It it does seem very much like uh, this is a signal to the rest of the Republicans, to their candidates, uh, to their incumbents, uh, that their leader in the House uh, doesn't think they, they have much of a future uh, in power uh, in the next couple of years. He's been their biggest fundraiser. Uh, he mm-hmm. is their highest elected uh, uh, leader in Washington. Um, mm-hmm. The Republic, the, if you were a Republican from a swing district, one of those targeted by Democrats for November, this has to be like the darkest, the darkest day of, of your uh, of your career to see Paul Ryan throwing in the towel at this point when he could have waited uh, until November. Yeah, but he could have done a couple of things, right? Could have waited till November, or he could have done this. Six months ago, yeah. right? Yeah. But doing it right now is a really tough thing because, and I don't want to get into too much political geekery, but to get on the ballot in, mo- in the vast majority of states for a congressional seat, you have to announce your candidacy and then file by a filing deadline. We are right around in the period of filing deadlines, right? Yes. And so if you're a member of Congress who hasn't filed formally for re-election yet, this is a point at which... You do a gut check, right? Yes. And I will promise you this. There are a whole bunch of members of the House who haven't, you know, hit their filing deadline yet, who are walking into Paul Ryan's office, closing the door, and saying, Paul, I listened to John Weiner on the radio the other Well, maybe they won't say that exactly. I don't think but so. something along that line. And he asked this question about, basically, did you know something that's going to blow in a week or two weeks or five weeks or something like that, that is going to end up being disastrous for us? Or, you know, what, are, what exactly is going on? And if Paul Ryan says, yeah, there are some things we should tell you, know what I mean? Yeah. You could still see a number of members stand down. But even if there's none of that, even if that's not the case, right, even if it's just looking at the circumstance without any additional information, the fact that Ryan, a consummate political strategist, fundraiser, and all these things, has decided to stand down when it was obvious to everyone that he still had ambitions, he still had things he wanted to do, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these things, that is a powerful signal to you that, um, that something's way awry. Because Paul Ryan is not standing down because he's tired of being in Congress, loved being in Congress. Paul Ryan is standing down because, for some reason or another, and we've discussed a lot of them here, he doesn't think being in Congress is, A, certain anymore for him or for his party in control, or B, that he thinks it's going to be so miserable in the coming weeks or months because of a Mueller report, because of something the president does, because of some other development that he just doesn't want to be there. Either one of those is a pretty bad, uh, pretty bad streak of news for other Republicans. 
Bad news for other Republicans. John Nichols knows more about Paul Ryan than probably anybody else uh, in the news business. Read him at thenation.com. John, so glad we got to talk to you about this today. Total pleasure, my friend. Keep strong. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch. Next up, how corporations won their civil rights. Adam Winkler will explain. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, how Big Wireless convinced us cell phones were safe. But first, how corporations won their civil rights. For that, we turn to Adam Winkler. He teaches law at UCLA. He's written for the New York Times, the New York Review, the Washington Post, and other publications. His last book was Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. We talked about it here. His new book is We the Corporations. Adam Winkler, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Well, corporations today have nearly all the same rights as individuals. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, religious liberty, due process, equal protection, freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures, the right to counsel, the right against double jeopardy, the right to trial by jury. The big question is, how did we get here? I want to start by saying, although we called this show Trump Watch, my understanding after reading your book is that corporations won all these rights before Trump. Trump didn't really do any of this. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, 2010 Citizens United highlighted that corporations had already won important rights, like the right to spend their money to influence election. And then in 2014, the Supreme Court followed that up with the Hobby Lobby case, which said corporations have religious freedom under a federal statute and entitled the company to an exemption from a law requiring them to cover birth control in employee plans. Uh, and uh, uh, this sort of raised the question about uh, how did corporations win our most fundamental rights? Uh, and as shocking and, and as disturbing as it may seem, much like women and minorities, corporations were not part of the original promise of we the people, but they have fought for 200 years to win equal rights under the Constitution. Well, before we get into the history, I just want to look at the headlines of the last couple of days where there is a Trump angle. It concerns the rights of one particular corporation, American Media Inc., that's the corporation that publishes the National Enquirer. Uh, they paid Playmate of the Year Karen McDougal $150,000 for the exclusive rights to the her story about her affair with Donald Trump while he was married to Melania, they didn't publish it, uh, and she is suing them. Their defense is that they have a First Amendment right not only to publish, but also not to publish something. What do you say? Well, there would be no doubt that a corporation today has broad free speech rights. We see that with cases like Citizens United and other uh, many First Amendment cases being brought on behalf of corporations and trade associations that represent corporations. Um, include, indeed, by one study, 50% of all First Amendment lawsuits brought today are brought by corporations or trade associations. Wow. 
So they have vibrant First Amendment rights, and they've been using those rights to challenge laws requiring them to speak, uh, saying things like uh, uh, graphic warnings on tobacco labels are compelled speech, uh, or that forcing them to um, provide certain kinds of disclosures uh, to employees or others or investors uh, is a violation of their free speech rights. So uh, the company here is on sound footing with regards to its constitutional rights, although this could be a matter of contract with uh, the other individual rather than a matter of state action raising constitutional questions. Yeah, I think she claims that they misled her or deceived her, that her understanding in entering into this contract was she was selling them the exclusive rights to publish her story and that she did expect them to publish her story. Uh, of course, we don't have this contract. What do you think that contract said? Well, I will say this, that if the contract did provide that the company had an obligation to publish uh, the article, uh, then there would be no free speech claim that the company could make. Right. It would be a straightforward breach of contract. You can contract away your free speech rights to private individuals, and indeed, uh, I'm sure uh, American media would insist that she doesn't have the right to talk about her story um, and violate the contract. Uh, so they would recognize that speech rights can be limited by contract. Uh, and there's another story about American uh, Media, Inc. that just broke uh, today. Uh, the National Enquirer uh, paid $30,000 to a former Trump Tower doorman who told them that Trump fathered a child with his housekeeper in the late 80s. Uh, this is now, uh, the New Yorker is running this not as a story about the daughter. They say they have no evidence that this is the Trump Act, that this story is true, but it shows a pattern in which the National Enquirer and its parent corporation, American Media Inc., uh, were acting on behalf of Trump to silence uh, people who had stories that might embarrass him and prevent him from becoming president. I don't think that's a constitutional issue, but it's a pretty interesting one. It sure is, and uh, it seems like there's a whole host of problems with uh, Michael Cohen's representation of Donald Trump uh, and some of these uh, dealings that he's had with some uh, previous people. The question really comes down to this, as you know better than anyone, John, which is that unless the Republicans in Congress are going to stand up to him, uh, then it doesn't look like Donald Trump's going to get in too much trouble for these kinds of scandals, even though they thought it was fit to impeach a Democratic president for doing this kind of stuff. Well, we started out here with you saying that, that Citizens uh, uh, United and Hobby Lobby are kind of the, the currently where the story of corporate civil rights uh, conclude in, in, in the last couple of years. Uh, let's talk about the beginning of this. Uh, as far as I know, the, the real turning point in corporate corporations gaining rights was the 14th Amendment adopted after the Civil, just after the Civil War. The purpose was to guarantee equal rights to freed slaves. Soon it became the basis of equal rights for corporation. How did that happen? What was the original intent of the authors of the 14th Amendment? 
Well, the story of how corporations won rights under the 14th Amendment is one of the most remarkable in the history of the whole Supreme Court, I think. Um, uh, and it's not the very first time the Supreme Court dealt with the rights of corporations. The first Supreme Court case on the rights of corporations actually was decided in 1809, a half century before the first Supreme Court cases on the rights of women or racial minorities. Um, uh, but some of the most important and influential decisions were those that came out of a remarkable series of cases brought by the Southern Pacific Railroad company to win rights under the 14th Amendment. This is in the 1880s, and the Southern Pacific Railway, Railroad Company hired an illustrious lawyer by the name of Roscoe Conkling, who had even been nominated and confirmed to sit on the Supreme Court himself, turning down the seat, being the last person ever to turn down a seat on the Supreme Court after having won confirmation. He was simply making too much money as a lawyer for the railroad. <laughs> wow. And uh, he went to the Supreme Court, and he said that the 14th Amendment uh, was drafted not just to protect the freedmen, but also to protect business corporations. And Conkling had been himself one of the drafters of the 14th Amendment. Wow. And it turns, out, it turns out that we know now that Conkling lied to the Supreme Court, that although he was viewed by the justices as a peer, as someone who had been nominated himself and had been a Republican leader, a leader in the Republican Party in Congress for decades, but he lied to the Supreme Court. Eventually, the Supreme Court did accept his argument, though, that the 14th Amendment protected corporations, and in the years to follow, corporations would win much more vibrant protections under the 14th Amendment than African Americans, the 14th Amendment's intended beneficiaries. But even though he may have deceived the Supreme Court in his day, today we know what the original intent was of the authors of the 14th Amendment. The, the doctrine of original intent, of course, is the sort of holy grail of the right wing of the court today. Don't they care that uh, the original intent uh, did not include uh, rights to corporations? Well, we don't really see that kind of criticism of the rights of corporations, even though there's no evidence that the founders back in uh, the late 1780s to early 1790s when they were writing and uh, ratifying the Constitution had any desire to protect business corporations, uh, uh, nor any real evidence that the 14th Amendment was adopted to protect business corporations. Um, but what we see is that although originalists often claim that living constitutionalism and sort of broad interpretations of our founding text are sort of deviations from its principles done to protect the rights of special groups like minorities and women. Uh, in fact, the history of the Supreme Court and constitutional law is begrudging interpretations of the Constitution for women and minorities for most of its history until the 1950s at least, and very broad and expansive living constitutionalism uh, invoked in favor of corporate rights. Um, so corporations have been one of the main beneficiaries of broad, expansive views of the Constitution. You, you said that the first time that, corpor that corporations were recognized as having civil rights came in 1809. That's, you know, shortly after the founding of, of our country. Uh, what argument did they make in 1809? That the corporations that existed then aren't really very much like American Media, Inc., they aren't really, although the first Supreme Court case on the rights of business corporations was brought to the court um, by one of the most, if not the most powerful and richest corporation in America at, time, at 
the time, the Bank of the United States, the first bank, which is famous, of course, for giving rise to the two competing political parties as it split Washington's cabinet uh, and giving rise to, I guess, a great rap battle in Hamilton the musical. Um, But the Bank (laughs) of the United States was set up as a private corporation, and it had stockholders and branches from Boston to New Orleans. And Jeffersonians um, uh, determined were like opponents of Obamacare, and they were determined to kill it by any means necessary. And they passed a tax on the Savannah a branch of the bank. And the bank wanted to challenge that tax in federal court. Um, and the question was, did the bank have the right to sue under Article 3 of the Constitution that provides a right of citizens to sue, other citizens, to sue citizens of other states in federal court? Uh, and uh, although the framers were not thinking about corporations, uh, and the text refers specifically to a right of citizens, the Supreme Court in 1809 uh, read that clause to protect business corporations. It's important to note that in 1857, in the notorious Dred Scott case, the Supreme Court read that exact same provision of Article 3 about the right to sue in federal court for citizens, so that could not, uh, that African Americans could not be citizens under the same provision that corporations were protected by. So, uh, you know, those of us who grew up uh, in the era of the Warren Court, who, uh, you know, learned about Brown versus Board of Education, have thought, grew up thinking of the Supreme Court as a defender of rights, have been very dismayed that the court in the, in, you know, the last decade or so has, has uh, strayed from that path. But uh, you make the point that actually in, over the long history of the Supreme Court, the Warren Court is very much the exception. And the rights of corporations are probably the most uh, vivid example of that, not only in claiming constitutional rights, but in undermining and depriving the rights of, uh, of uh, working-class people. That's right. I mean, when we look back, we see this very long history and tradition of corporations using the courts to uh, expand their power and to overturn laws regulating business. Laws designed to protect consumers or investors or the public at large. Um, the corporations have been uh, really quite adept at this. Uh, and it's true the Warren Court um, is one that, we, that had an unusual um, consciousness of racial justice and access to justice and equal rights. Um, but the Supreme Court, um, despite being liberal and conservative during various times in its history, has almost always been very business-friendly. One of the surprising things I find about even the Warren Court is that the Warren Court also expanded the rights of business corporations uh, and did so um, uh, in order to protect liberal values like the freedom of the press. When you think about one of the most important First Amendment cases ever decided was New York Times versus Sullivan giving recognizing the right to criticize public officials. That case was brought in the name of a corporation by a corporation, the New York Times Company. And if you think about it, what is The Post, the popular movie today, uh, but a movie about a for-profit business corporation, a newspaper, that was asserting its constitutional rights? And indeed, uh, American Media Inc. Uh, claims uh, to have the same rights as the Washington Post, and I guess we uh, we all accept that today, that the Supreme Court can't distinguish between the National Enquirer and the Washington Post in terms of their rights. And maybe it shouldn't distinguish between the Washington Post and the National Enquirer, both corporations that are devoted to 
the publication of the printed word, whereas perhaps what the Supreme Court has lost sight of is the distinction between media corporations like newspapers and outlets that uh, really contribute to that democratic deliberation and checking of government uh, and uh, advertisements by Exxon uh, or uh, Mobile Oil or uh, other big corporations spending shareholders' money to promote a partisan view of politics. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Adam Winkler of the UCLA Law School. He's got a wonderful new book out, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Uh, you show how ingenious, how bold uh, the attorneys for corporations have been. Citizens United is one of the most striking cases uh, here where... Uh, the issue became not just the rights of Citizens United to say whatever they wanted to say, but the rights of, of the audience, of us, of, of readers and listeners, uh, to hear what uh, different people have to say. Remind us of uh, how, the, how that story developed. Well, it's really one of uh, a really surprising uh, counterintuitive story in some ways, which is that Ralph Nader... Uh, in some ways did more to advance the cause of business speech rights than anyone. Now, I have in to say, on KPFK, that, that's really blasphemy. Ralph Nader is a I god know. on KPFK. I know, but, let's, but let me tell you the story, and then you can judge for yourself. Okay. I mean, obviously, Ralph Nader was, uh, uh, was focusing on helping the rights of consumers in the 1970s. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and Nader w took a landmark case to the Supreme Court um, uh, that challenged restrictions on pharmacists' ability to advertise drug prices. Uh, and he wasn't trying to help out the pharmacists or the businesses that wanted to advertise. He was trying to help out the consumers. And so he argued to the Supreme Court that the consumers had rights to hear what the pharmacists would say in their advertisements. Yeah. And the Supreme Court said yes. yes. And that case, yeah, that case established what's known as the commercial speech doctrine, and it gave corporations the right to advertise. And since then... That right has been used far more on behalf of business corporations to challenge restrictions on their advertising and on uh, disclosure requirements uh, than it has been by consumers seeking to get access to information. And in fact, um, uh, the current head of Public Citizen uh, recently wrote an article arguing for a constitutional amendment eliminating all rights for corporations, uh, which of course in many ways stemmed from this really important uh, case. And, uh, and I say that, remember, in Citizens United, the Supreme Court majority opinion specifically harkened back to that listener's rights theory of the First Amendment, first established by Ralph Nader's lawsuit um, back in the 1970s. So it is a sign of how there's sometimes unintended consequences to reform, and corporations have been really effective at leveraging reforms in the Constitution designed for progressive ends to serve the ends of capital. So it's not a criticism of Ralph Nader as much as a story of how corporations have been successful at manipulating and exploiting even the work of Ralph Nader to advance the cause of business. You've convinced us it wasn't Ralph's fault. Uh, one of the most interesting arguments you make in your book, there, there have been a few glimmers, let us say, inside the court on the other side. One of the most interesting came in 1946 when Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black argued, made an argument about how we could limit uh, 
the the power of corp the rights and the powers of corporations. Tell us about Hugo Black's 1946 argument. Well, Hugo Black was a really uh, unusual figure in the history of uh, the Supreme Court when it came to questions of constitutional rights for corporations, because he, uh, unlike most justices, was a firm opponent of the idea that corporations had rights and was the only justice really over the last century to really argue forcefully for, uh, for um, overturning the, those Southern Pacific Railroad cases and related cases that gave corporations 14th Amendment rights. And uh, in uh, one really notable decision that he had, Marsh versus Alabama in the 1940s, he held that corporations had to respect the individual rights of other citizens. Now, that's unusual, because usually constitutional rights are only limitations on what the government can do. It's not a restriction on whatever other private parties can do. Uh, it's a restriction on the government. And the court and corporations ever since the early 1800s in an important decision known as the Dartmouth College case, uh, corporations have been thought to be private entities, uh, and that with regards to the government, they're more like individuals with rights against the government. And the Supreme Court in the Marsh case held that corporations, at least uh, in the context of a company town that ran a whole basic town uh, around, uh, 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 around this business entity, um, uh, was... Uh, uh, was responsible for obeying the Constitution uh, and, like the government, had to respect the individual rights uh, of uh, citizens and residents and people who came through the town. So that was a real landmark opinion. Could have really reshaped American constitutional law had it took off and all corporations would be ha having to respect individual rights because they are people who have so much power over our lives. And I think eventually we'll see reforms to make at least some corporations, like perhaps Facebook or Google, uh, into entities that do respect individuals' privacy rights. And what today are the most important initiatives uh, on on that front to to restore uh, equal justice under the law uh, as opposed to the realities of corporate power? Well, there's uh, you know a lot of efforts. Uh, uh, there's an effort, for instance, to amend the Constitution to declare that corporations are not people and have no rights under the Constitution. This has been um, endorsed uh, by about 19 states, um, uh, and that could go forward and amend the Constitution to overturn the Supreme Court's uh, decisions. I think it's probably uh, a very uh, tough call for that to happen, and maybe uh, something we might not want to happen if it means that media corporations uh, like the Washington Post or uh, CNN could be, uh, or KPFK could be uh, uh, shut down uh, uh, and claim uh, with the government saying you have no rights because you're a corporation. Um, so there are moves, uh, and uh, like I say, I think these uh, Facebook hearings have revealed how private corporations are really taking all of our information and gaining so much intimate information about us uh, that eventually we're going to have to impose privacy norms on those private corporations if we want to guarantee the values that the founders sought to protect with the Fourth Amendment, guaranteeing your uh, papers, houses, uh, and effects uh, from unreasonable searches and seizures. And let us acknowledge it's not just the ACLU which is concerned about uh, the excesses of uh, corporate power and the defense of the rights of individuals. Uh, Barack Obama, I believe, uh, made an important statement about the corporations' uh, legal status during the uh, Romney, his campaign against Mitt Romney. You want to remind us about that little exchange? 
Uh, well, of course, Romney was, uh, became notorious for saying, corporations are people, my friend, at the Iowa uh, State Fair. That was way back when, when a gaffe actually uh, sidetracked a presidential candidate, uh, unlike today, where it seems you can say anything. Um, but that one gaffe really defined his campaign, um, and it was uh, thought to be really insensitive to uh, corporations. Um, President Barack Obama weighed in on this issue many times, saying that um, uh, no matter how many times you try to explain it, people are people. Corporations are not people. And, of course, there was that one incident where uh, at the State of the Union address where Barack Obama was confronted uh, by the Supreme Court justices sitting right there in the front row, uh, and he argued right to them that he thought their decision in Citizens United was uh, wrongly decided and would open the floodgates for money, including money from foreign influences, uh, to shape our elections. Uh, and indeed, right now, one of the biggest scandals we're seeing is about the effort of foreign countries to try to uh, influence our elections. Adam Winkler, he'll be talking about how corporations won civil rights at the L.A. Times Festival of Books at USC, Saturday, April 21st, 3.30 p.m. Adam, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch. Next up, is cell phone radiation a cause of cancer? That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Now it's time to talk about how big wireless made us think cell phones were safe. That's the subject of a special investigation by The Nation. It's the cover story of the new issue. And for that, we turn to Mark Hertzgard. He's The Nation's investigative editor at large, the author of seven books that have been translated into 16 languages, most recently Bravehearts, Whistleblowing in the Age of Snowden. We reached him in San Francisco. Mark, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, the World Health Organization in 2011 classified cell phone radiation as a possible human carcinogen, and the governments of Great Britain, France, and Israel have issued strong warnings on cell phone use by children. To be clear at the top of this segment, are you saying cell phones cause cancer? I'm not saying that. What, what our story in the nation reports is how the wireless industry, the cell phone industry, has manipulated the public understanding of that debate around cell phone safety. And in particular, as you look, you see that the big wireless companies use the very same playbook that big oil used around climate change to lie about climate change, and that big tobacco previously used to lie about cigarettes. And essentially, the, the game is to create the appearance of scientific uncertainty in order to blunt any calls for uh, government regulation. And uh, that's what we found in our documented story. But our story very specifically says we are not arguing whether cell phones are safe or not safe. That is for scientists to decide. But what we are telling you in this expose is how the industry has wargamed science and manipulated government policymakers and spun the news media so that you think that these phones are safe. You say the cell phone industry doesn't have to win the scientific argument about safety. What do you mean? 
That's the key strategic insight that, again, Big Wireless got from Big Tobacco and and, uh, Big Oil. If you are trying to fend off regulation like these industries are, what you want to do is to create doubt that your product is guilty. And that's what I mean by you don't have to win the argument that uh, cigarette smoking is safe or that climate change isn't real. What you have to do, and we saw this very explicitly with the um, oil companies and climate change, is that you keep putting your bought scientists on uh, the air and in the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal and so forth, saying our studies show that that, uh, the environmentalists are exaggerating again. And the purpose of that is not to win the argument. You can't win the argument that cigarette smoking uh, isn't related to cancer. But you can delay that argument. You're buying time so that you can keep your products uh, going out the door and selling uh, for as long as possible. You keep the the, uh, scientific argument going. Well, I've seen reports that instead of citing one or two articles, look at the hundreds of articles about cell phone safety that have been published in scientific journals over the last, what, decade or two, a slight majority of the several hundred safety studies of cell phones, a slight majority did find a biological effect from cell phone radiation, but only a slight majority, so that makes it appears like the scientific community is indeed split over this. Yeah, exactly. And the, uh, it's interesting. If we, we, we uh, As I say, our piece is not about whether uh, this is safe or not, but we did go and look at the data that is held by the National Institutes of Health, in, uh, which, of course, is a U.S. government agency. And most of the uh, studies there do show biological effects of cell phone radiation. Not all of them, but a definite majority of them do show that. You would not know that from media coverage. But the more interesting thing to me is that one of our sources found that when you recategorize scientific studies and you look at where did the funding for that study come from, then the results change dramatically. And essentially, if it's an independent study, independently funded study, I should say, versus an industry-funded study, the industry-funded studies were two and a half times less likely to find any kind of, of health impacts. And so that gets back to the point I was trying to make earlier about the uh, wargaming of science and the scientific uncertainty. What industry can do when studies come out, as they did just last week, a U.S. government study from uh, the National Toxicology Program that a peer review found had, quote-unquote, clear evidence of cancer on the part of cell phone radiation. When those kinds of studies come out, or when the World Health Organization uh, says in 2011 that cell phone radiation is a, quote, possible, unquote, carcinogen. The industry can always say, and does say, as we describe in our story, well, that's just one report. The overall balance of evidence shows that, in fact, there's no proven health concern here with cell phones. And they're able to say that and say it accurately precisely because there are studies out there that find no effect. What the industry will not tell you, though, is that they're the ones who funded a lot of those studies. 
There's another ingenious argument in your cover story for The Nation, and that's your look at the insurance industry and their position on this question. Does the insurance industry think there's a debate, it's undecided, we can't tell whether cell phones are, are linked to cancer? Yeah, I want to give a shout-out to my co-author there. That was Mark Dowie's idea. He went around to all of the major insurance companies and asked, would you sell me uh, health insurance for product liability and health insurance for cell phones? And not one of the companies said yes, including the, the venerable Lloyds of London, which, of course, made its reputation for hundreds of years as the firm that will insure anything. And uh, it's actually one of the people that uh, Dowie talked to said, he chuckled, one of these industry executives, and said, why would we do that? And why would we, why would we sell you that? Uh, and precisely because they know that there are many lawsuits pending in courts, uh, both in the, here in the United States and overseas, that are trying to hold the cell phone industry uh, legally liable for usually its brain cancers. Now, your question, John, was does the industry, does the insurance industry believe that phones are safe? You know, the insurance industry, excuse me, does not take a position on that. But the insurance industry looks very carefully at what is going on in the legal world and the scientific world. And they see, for example, that the, in a courtroom in Italy, the judge of a case involving uh, a brain tumor, a brain cancer victim who's suing the industry, the judge did not allow industry-funded science to be introduced into his courtroom. Wow. And once you don't allow that, things are going to look very different from the standpoint of the evidence that uh, adjudicates the case. So that, I think, is why, why insurance companies are saying, we're not going to get in the middle of this. There's billions of dollars at stake, and we're not going to bet that the uh, wireless industry is telling the truth about this. Last question, 5G. We're getting ready. We're excited about the 5G rollout. This is the fifth generation cell phone technology that is going to be so much faster than what we have now. We'll be able to have 3D gaming on our cell phones. What could be better than that? What's the situation with the our understanding of the health risks of fifth generation 5G technology? There, it's very important to remember what was perhaps the most astonishing fact I came across in our investigation here. Cell phones were allowed onto the U.S. consumer market in the 1980s without any pre-marketing safety testing by the government. That's part of the reason that we're in this problem now with cell phones. And that is exactly what is about to happen again with 5G technology. We are about to roll out 5G technology all across the country without doing safety testing of it. And this is something that uh, we quote a petition signed by hundreds of scientists around the world who've published over 2,000 peer-reviewed uh, journal articles, and they are warning that the anticipated shift to 5G will, quote-unquote, massively increase the amount of radiation the general population gets, not just people using cell phones, because with 5G, the type of, of radio waves used are different than the current uh, ones, and therefore, in order for 5G to work and to give this kind of coverage where your smartphone and your smart home and your smart vehicle will all be talking to each other and even your wet baby's diapers will send a message to you know, mom in the next room that the diapers need changing, for all that to work, 
there's going to have to be these mini cell transmitters about the size of a pizza box that will be installed every 250 feet on city streets, on suburban neighborhoods, in order for there to be complete coverage that the 5G model requires. And that, I think, is really something that we need to stop and think about before we do. The result, according to one of the scientists quoted in our story, Joel Moskowitz of the University of California, Berkeley, says, because these transmitters will be located every 250 feet on you know, telephone poles or street lights, essentially, everyone will be bathed in a smog of radiation 24-7. Let's think about that before we go down that road. Mark Hertzgard is co-author of How Big Wireless Made Us Think That Cell Phones Are Safe, a special investigation. It's the cover story in The Nation magazine this week. Mark, thanks for this report, and thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. One last thing to recap. Uh, One of the big stories uh, that we've talked about in this hour, The New Yorker published on its website a story today by Ronan Farrow, saying that American Media Inc., the publisher of the National Enquirer, paid the doorman, a former doorman at Trump Tower $30,000 to the exclusive right to a story. He claimed that Trump fathered a child with his housekeeper in the late 80s. Uh, the New Yorker's position is they are not confirming the truth of this story. They did not confirm the truth of this story. But it seems to be part of a pattern in which the National Enquirer uh, pays off people who have disparaging information about Trump, gets exclusive rights to their story, and thereby prevents it from being reported by anybody else. No doubt we'll find out more about uh, Trump's doorman and his report that Trump fathered a child with his housekeeper in the late 80s. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.